0: Welcome to Frankly Judaic, a podcast that explores cutting-edge Judaic studies research conducted at the University of Michigan. I'm your host, Corey Horn. The Greco-Roman antiquity is the period where the Mediterranean basin, including the land of Israel, was dominated first by Greek kingdoms in the wake of Alexander's great conquest in the 4th century. It transitioned under the control of Rome and was dominated by Rome until the 7th century CE when a large portion of the Near East was conquered by Muslim Arabs.
1: I consider myself a cultural historian. What interests me is, is the history of Jewish cultures and
0: the way they evolved, the
1: way they developed in interaction with non-Jewish cultures of the time.
0: Dr. Alexei Sivertsev, is with the Department of Religious Studies at DePaul University in Chicago. Broadly studying a range from the first century BCE until the seventh century CE, his current research is titled Semiotic Communities, Science and the Construction of Jewish Identities in the Second Temple Period.
1: What I study for this project
0: is the way in
1: which Jewish communities in the Greco Roman period identified themselves with the range of science. Rather than specific meanings inherent uh, to those signs, or you know, intrinsic to those signs, there are multiple definitions of what a sign is and what the meaning of, of of the word entails. The definition that I embrace for the purpose of my research is that a sign is a conventional mark, a figure, a gesture, or an action
0: used to convey information. This definition has been around a lot longer than Siebertsev and actually originated from one of the founders of modern semiology and the study of semiotics. Linguist Ferdinand de Saussure lived in the late 19th, earliest 20th century, and argued that a sign or a word does not have any inherent meaning. Its meaning is always determined by a sentence or a context in which that sign appears. So the same word or collection of letters or collection of vowels, or sounds, may have different meanings depending on the context in which the word finds itself.
1: The sign does not have any meaning, specific meaning, inherent to it or intrinsic to it. It's always contextual. It's always determined by the syntactic structure, by a sentence, by a phrase, by a paragraph in which it uh, appears in, in, in any given moment. And so what I attempt to do in my research is to project this kind of understanding into the study of Jewish cultures in antiquity.
0: Sivertsev's research argues that with the arrival of Hellenism in the fourth century, signs were detached from their previous meanings and came to serve as performative markers for the discursive construction of group identities. But what exactly is Hellenism, and what does discursive construction really mean? The Hellenistic period is the time period associated
1: with the rule of Greek dynasties in in the Eastern Mediterranean in the wake of conquests by Alexander the Great. Alexander dies after conquering this huge territory, essentially stretching from Asia Minor and Egypt uh, in the West all the way to present-day Pakistan, India, Central Asia in the East. He dies without leaving an heir, and his generals inherit from him. And very quickly, his empire falls into parts, ruled by his generals.
0: Focusing on the Jews in this period, particularly those in the land of Israel, there are two kingdoms that are very important. The Ptolemaic dynasty, which is based in Egypt, and the Seleucid dynasty, which is based in present-day Syria. These dynasties are fighting over control of the Near East, and the land that's caught right in between them is Israel. What
1: happens during that period is that Greek culture and Greek cultural conventions, by which I mean language, but also institutions, such as a greek style city-state called Polis and its institutions uh, and Greek art, they arrive in the Near East uh, in the wake of Alexander's conquest, but also in the wake of Greek settlement. And they begin to mix with local Near Eastern traditions, including Jewish ones. Hellenism is essentially a result of that mix, a result of that intermingling between native Near Eastern cultures and the Greek Hellenic culture.
0: This new cultural phenomenon, now known as Hellenism, continues past the dominance of the Greek kingdoms by the gradual arrival of the Romans. Starting in 3rd century BCE, continuing into the 2nd and 1st century BCE, Rome takes over the territory from the Greek kingdoms.
1: Rome gradually takes over the territory from the Greek kingdoms, from the Seleucid and Ptolemaic kingdoms. So when Rome takes this territory over, it does not introduce any major cultural change. So in a way, that Hellenistic culture continues in its various modifications all the way until the 7th century CE of the common era when the territory is taken over again by Muslim Arabs and when that Hellenistic Greek-based culture based
0: uh, on the Greek language is gradually replaced by Arabic culture. One of the characteristics defining that period is cultural groups, in general, not just Jews, forming their identities around groups of signs or symbols. Signs or symbols that may not have any specific intrinsic meaning attached to them.
1: That's part of my argument. More often, they don't have intrinsic meanings attached to them. More often, they have a variety of possible meanings attached to them. And those meanings are based on a variety of contexts in which those signs, those symbols
0: appear. With this transition of power and integration of culture over such a long period of time, Did these communities even recognize the changes that were happening around them? Sievertsev continues arguing that individuals are not conscious actors and the moves are subconscious on a much bigger level. One of the best examples that we have supporting this with rich literature is the menorah. I think we encounter, in the second type of period, the menorah comes to be used
1: in a variety of contexts, menorah as a symbol. As, as a sign, as a mark, comes to be used in a variety of material contexts. It appears on coins. It appears on coins minted by one of the last Hasmonean rulers, whose name is Antigonus. It appears on uh, funeral inscriptions. It appears depicted in a synagogue. And there's a question then. The settings are very different. And there are also different geographic settings. It appears in the land of Israel. It also appears in the diaspora.
0: The original meaning of the menorah is rather simple. It is a sacred lampstand in the temple, a very physical object that exists in one place at one time that could not be removed. But now the menorah has been duplicated in form in a number of ways. Does it still actually convey the same meaning?
1: My argument would be that no, it does not. It really depends on what context it appears to, because each, each material context is like a sentence. So when the menorah appears on, on coins, its meaning is not necessarily the same as when it appears in a funeral inscription. And when it appears in a funeral inscription in the land of Israel, it's not necessarily the same as when it appears in a funeral inscription in a diaspora. Each of these settings, it has a different meaning. So menorah as such in this situation, becomes what, again, we would call, in the semiotics, an empty sign, an a sign empty of any intrinsic meaning associated with it. It gets filled with a particular meaning every time it appears in a new context.
0: Although these signs may have a new meaning assigned, it does not mean they automatically lose the original value assigned to the original purpose the physical menorah in the temple remained sacred even while being duplicated at Mass. It remained in the temple in a place where only priests were able to access it. It did not mean that those other representations became sacred upon creation, but what it did develop was a mark of identity for specifically the Jews. While marks like the menorah were identity-based, there were also performative markers for the Jews, and perhaps one of the most well-known of those is circumcision. Circumcision comes front and center
1: in the self-representation of Jewish community precisely during the Greco-Roman period. As we read First Maccabees, the description of the Maccabean revolt in, in the second century BCE, their circumcision is really central. It's central as a rallying point. It's central for marking, identifying, setting aside Jewish community. When the book describes Anti-Jewish persecution, one of the things that gets attacked is circumcision. When the book describes Jewish reaction the Meccabean uprising, one of the things that gets upheld and then enforced is circumcision.
0: When the Hasmonean dynasty started expanding outside of Judea and conquering territories in 2nd and 1st centuries BCE, one of the things they did was forcibly circumcise people who they conquered in order to include them into this newly envisioned, newly designed Jewish community. Being one of the first examples of conversion, it also became part of a political expansion in the land of Israel. When people found out Jews are circumcised, it also meant they were part of this group identified as Judeans at that specific period of time.
1: Circumcision is this example of a performed act or performed sign, which also becomes important as a discursive sign because you don't just perform it, it becomes part of how you verbalize your identity because reference to circumcision becomes crucial in written texts that describe Jews, Jews and non-Jewish alike, because when non-Jewish authors talk about Jews, circumcision is one of the markers, is one of the signs that identify Jews for them. I mean, mean, in Greco-Roman authors.
0: On some level, this choice of circumcision now is in fact a conscious shift. It also plays a greater value in marking one's participation in a community. Which is interesting, because it doesn't necessarily articulate for yourself any intrinsic meaning. You very well could be doing it just to do it, because by doing it, you're participating in the community. And this now leads us into the idea of discursive construction.
1: Discursive construction is the way things are talked about, described. So it's basically the way they appear in self-narration, in talking about oneself, in self-presentation, in narrative context. So discursive construction is essentially a narrative construction.
0: So we have both Jews and non-Jews with performative and discursive markers. Markers that became indispensable to organizing and structuring society. There are several processes associated with this identity construction. Some of them have to do with violent changes, such as the breaking up of kingdoms. There was also a major event in Jewish history called the Jewish Revolt Against Rome in 66 CE. This resulted in destruction of the temple in 70 CE marking a significant turning point in Jewish history. It's not only the destruction of the temple, but also the destruction of Jerusalem and the Jewish communities across Judea. This caused shifts in political, social, and cultural structures of Jewish society as a whole. You also have
1: new markers either coming into existence or old markers being reconsidered. And restructured. And uh, part of it has to do with the rise of what is called in modern historiography, in modern history of the Jews, Rabbinic Judaism, Judaism which people practice today and which is associated with the group called rabbis, active in the first several centuries of the Common Era, when many of practices and symbolic forms get reimagined, some would say reinvented.
0: Having all of these old and new markers spread across thousands of years leaves you wondering how much of this information from the root source do we actually have? Do we know the real identities and meanings behind some of these signs and symbols that we see today?
1: There is literature and there are written sources, but there are also archaeological sources and there are material sources which we continue to discover through archaeological research. But even literature that we've had for a very long time, we keep coming back to those texts and ask them new questions. And then based on those questions, they provide new sets of answers. It's always an ongoing process. The way you structure uh, your conversation with those texts on those artifacts that you discover yields new answers, yields new, new results.
0: Technology and new findings allow ways for these old signs to be reimagined. But to really understand the complexity of these origins, one has to be far more immersed than a single menorah.
1: If you want to understand a culture, it's really important to learn how to speak its language or multiple languages. Symbolic forms, signs, ways in which people express themselves, identify themselves, is part of their language, culturally speaking. To understand Jewish cultures of antiquity, one has to learn languages they spoke, and that would go beyond Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. That would go into those cultural conventions, which they used, uh, symbolic forms that they used to express themselves and to construct their identity. So that's what we have to study, a variety of symbolic forms, a variety of languages spoken by
0: Jewish communities in that time. You've been listening to Frankly Judaic, a production of the Jean and Samuel Frankel Center for Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. The executive producer is Scott Spector, You can find and subscribe to Frankly Judaic anywhere you get podcasts. If you like the show, please leave a five-star review. Thanks for listening.